1: To Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking to people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today's guest, Marie Vargas, represents all of the above. This daughter of Indian immigrants is a Desi diasporic queer, non-binary femme, tracing her roots across the homelands that stretch from Manhattan skylines to New Jersey suburbs and mango trees that grow in India. Marie comes from a long line of storytellers, and her creative writing explores the contours of immigrant family life, queer invisibility, grief, and resilience. Her poem, Rearranging the Bones, was recently published in a book of poetry. Today, she'll be sharing an unpublished work that she wrote about 20 years ago, Reflections of the Glass Divide. Although unpublished, this powerful piece has been used in various settings to foster conversation, helping others to realize what it's like to walk in the shoes of those often seen as the other by the majority culture. Marie is a senior advisor for the CUNY START program at Bronx Community College in New York. CUNY START is an intensive program for incoming college students who have earned a high school diploma or GED, but need to increase their academic proficiency in reading, writing, and mathematics prior to enrollment in college credit classes. Marie is passionate about expanding college access for communities of color, first generation students, LGBTQIA individuals, recent immigrants, and undocumented students. Marie Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today?
2: I'm doing well. I've been looking forward to this all week long.
3: Say so your last name for me. It's Varghese, right?
2: Burgies, yeah.
3: Right. Mhm. Oh, hey. I did, I'm, I'm I'm cooking with gas as they say. You totally got that in the first try.
2: <laughs> 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 well done. And
3: are you inside or out?
2: I'm inside. Yeah, it well, is a hot a day.
3: I know. I mean, it's like we went from, we had a moment of spring, and now we're right here in summer. Um, exactly. Marie, I am happy to talk to you. And one of the things that I liked about you as you talked about yourself, and, you know, and I talk about people are standing in the intersections, and some people will say, they, they have, their intersections are like race and gender. But, you know, race, gender, geography, you know, religion, all of these things make us who we are. And I like how you said that you are a dizzy, diasporic, queer, non-binary femme who was born and raised along the borderlands of the George Washington Bridge, and you trace your roots across homeland that stretch from Manhattan to New Jersey and mango trees in India. Wow. Hmm. That is just beautiful. That is just beautiful. You know, um, and so many people, I mean, if you really stop and think of it, you know, you are all of those things, but often we forget some of who we are. Why is it, was it important? in describing yourself that you started at that point?
2: Hmm. Well, I think part of it was reflecting on the journey on how I inhabit these identities as sort of like a lived experience. I don't think I could, you know, drop one part of me for any of the others, right? Um, I love the the sort of the impetus of your podcast because it is, you know, quite importantly about the intersections. And so, um, you know, as I grow into even new language, identifying as non-binary and and uh, and femme have been, you know, in later years of my life. And you know, when I was younger, I had told people in the past like. You know, first identified as a feminist and then gay and then queer, you know it's just this constant coming out, but then there's also this concept of this uh this arrival um and a and a return. So what I mean by that is that um I'm arriving towards a more nuanced articulation of myself, which helps me see myself mm. and share that with others uh-huh.
3: Yeah, you know, because it, and it's funny that this is like this perfect time for that and that people, I think, are, are starting to recognize it. But we've often had that, that box that people mm-hmm. want to put you in. Like, you know, um, if you go to a women's event, they want you to be, like, strictly feminist in a certain way. You know, mm-hmm. um, people want you, everyone has this thing, like, you have this, like, big umbrella of, like, American and it's like you know well what is American and really Mm -hmm. American is all of these things but it's almost like how often do you see that you hit a wall where people want you to to have this like quote-unquote American lens where we're denying a part of us but the reality is all of these part of us is not only makes us who we are but what makes this country you know as we move towards to fulfilling our destiny, great, you know, why erase all of it? Absolutely, now, absolutely. Now, how, you know, as you, do you have you felt that like in your professional or even in your family, like it's like, Marie, just pick one or the other, you know, why do you have to be ever every everything?
2: <laughs> Well, I think I'll start off by saying that I was never really good at fitting into any boxes <laughs> <Yeah>. uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. from from childhood on, right? And I'm sure uh-huh. that you can relate to that as well. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's like you identify the box and, 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 you know, in the beginning of my life, in my earliest years, um, you know, there were very sort of, like, rigid expectations about what women should do and, you know, what was feminine and what was masculine. Um, and I, you know, it wasn't until I got older that I really started, like, questioning that in a um, in a more sort of, like, I guess, cerebral way or an energetic way um, and recognize recognizing other sides to myself. But I was someone who grew up in a household where hmm, I was more – I was there to, like, I was seen, but I was not heard. Uh I was seen, but I was not heard. My opinions really didn't matter as a child. You know, it wasn't until I started to connect with teachers and, you know, and be in school um, where I started to sort of channel my thoughts, my feelings into writing. And then that's when I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) you know, Um, I started questioning all of these sort of rules and and regulations. Um, Many years ago, I heard somebody say, um, I was at a conference, it was at the um, long time ago, um, uh, Insight Women of Color Conference, and someone had said that, you know, the first oppression that you experience is youth oppression Mm. because nobody takes you seriously. And being able to sort of grow into myself, and I I identify as someone who is sort of, I don't know if it's the right word to say late bloomer, but it took me some time (laughs) to Uh to grow into sort of my independence and to find my voice. And I think that's also because of the amazing teachers and educators, um, you know, community people, like all the people in my life who helped me to grow my voice that's why it feels like such a natural thing for me to be able to offer that with my students um as a as a like here this is an exploration place you know like let's get to know each other and figure out like you know do you um what are you passionate about what do you dream of you know what are you fearful like these are very in-depth conversations that I'll that I'll have but it came from from that sort of starting point for me I actually share that with my students in an intentional way um, over a uh-huh. course of the semester.
3: You know, and you're right, because, you know, I mean, I know it's when your kids, like, you visit, it's like they want you to talk so much for, you know, a minute, and then, and it's like, oh, that's cute. But then when you start to express an opinion or really have questions about things, then it's like, you know, no, no, no. And there's something important about having those teachers who can influence you and also sometimes help you see beyond what mm-hmm. you've got, you know. I know one of the things I often tell people, like, you know, we were, I went to Catholic school, and my parents had this really clear idea of what you want to do, and they had this path that they saw. And the, one of the greatest things was, like, we had, I had this one nun who listened to me, heard me, and then went and advocated for me to my parents to let me go to a public school where I would get a broader experience and really develop. Mm. You know what it was, but you know of the same things that I had been telling my parents that I wanted to to do. It was like, oh, you know, you know, I mean, I wanted to play a harp. My father asked me did I want to be an angel when I grew up. You know, it's sort of like you know, it was like you know, like, like shutting me down. But yeah, like you said, teachers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't sometimes don't recognize the important role that
2: they can have as far as opening doors, right? And you know, within the time that, especially when they're working with you, oftentimes we don't know what's the story beyond. You know, most people kind of come into your path and leave, um, but then there's others where you know where they reappear and show up and that has been happening to me a lot lately which has been absolutely delightful to you know reconnect with students that I have worked with um, you know five years ago ten years ago twenty years ago Um, you know it's that's been such a journey but I I agree with exactly what you're saying like your your teacher saw you for who you were Mm -hmm. and just having a space to just be easeful I'll um I'll share something. When I, was, um, when I was in, like, seven years old, uh, so I was in between second grade and third grade, um, my brother passed away. He died in 1988 of a mm-hmm. uh, complicated bacterial pneumonia, and it was uh. sudden. It was very sudden. Um, you know, he was perfectly healthy, but, you know, and then, and then a month later he died. Um, I had no one to talk to about that. When I was a kid, I think the focus of the grieving was the focus of the parents grieving their child, which, of course, you know, that sort of, um, you know, the thing they say, like, nothing hurts worse than the grief of, of, of a child, and, you know, while that was, of course, there, I think that um, you know, within where I grew up in Teanex, New Jersey, there's a very strong Indian community. Um, and I think that that was just where the focus and attention was. But I was there witnessing. I, in fact, remember at that time, I said if there was anything that I could do to heal my parents from their grief, like, I would do it. But I never really focused on my process. Mm-hmm. until after that summer, I had a teacher I still remember her. Her name is Miss Jacobson. Um, she was a white woman with very, very curly hair, um, almost like, like light blonde, almost Nordic. Um, and, and she was a pretty, fairly new teacher in the school system. And she had this remarkable idea where every day she had journal time in the class. And, you know, those little blue books. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so she just handed out blue books to, to everybody. And we would sit at our desks, and we would have some time where we would journal. And this is what the most brilliant thing, and sort of the legacy that I carry um, is from her, is that um, when I would write things down, if there was something, maybe I was feeling complicated about what I wanted to share, you know, like I had complicating feelings about that, maybe I was dealing with the grief, or I was just resurfacing some, you know, just sad thoughts or uncomfortable, whatever it was, or even if she's just like, I just don't want you to know about it. She told us to take the paper and fold it in half inside the blue book so that I couldn't see it, like the, the teacher couldn't mm. see it. Mm-hmm. And then it was a dialogue journal. And so what happened was that I would give it, I would give the journal to her at the end of the journal day, and she would read it and she would read the things that and read the things that i left open and you know what she told us is that she didn't read the things that i folded up and that was so powerful because it allowed me to grieve at my own pace and that was my therapy in third grade, you know. Mm, wow. My parents didn't even know, like, what it was to put a child in therapy. Like, wouldn't even, you know, they were just trying to survive. And here I was with this teacher who had this remarkable idea to just, you know, what you want to be closed, you can do that. You have um, agency around that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Even just, like, an idea of thinking about it, you know, reflecting on it, this idea of consent, you know. I'm letting uh-huh. you into my life. To be all up in my parts of my life, that was such a transformative experience for me because that's when the vulnerable things that I would write, I started to open up more, and I would open up those pages for her to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, how wonderful is that that she gave you that? yeah. Yeah, it is such a gift. It is a gift that. Really, I mean, like I said, it's third grade, right? Like, this is, this is an educator that made it a huge imprint on my life and informs my practice today. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it came time for the parent-teacher conference, and, um, and, my, and my teacher had a conversation with my father and said, you know, your daughter has some really big feelings about grieving, about losing her brother. And I think that that was really, like, it stunned him so much, because I was so quiet at home, uh-huh. and, you know, and, I, and I, that just, like, it started a journey for me, and in fact, I, um, I share this, you know, to reflect on how important, it, it, you know, it has been for me, but um, we do this thing, so, you know, as you know, um, I work at the City University of New York at Bronx Community College um, in uh-huh. the CUNY Start program, which is a college transition program, so I work with students who um, are from all walks of life, right? Um, Uh And, you know, there is like the age ranges from 17 to mm, one of my older students was like in his mid-fifties. Students from the Bronx, uh, not all from the Bronx, but certainly, you know, majority, Uh a lot of first-generation students, um, you know. And so one of the things that we do now is something called um, this educational timeline where the students at some point in the semester fairly like early on we have them map out the different points of where they um you know in their education. So maybe uh-huh. I them as an example, I give this very example. So I was in um, you know, I was in third grade, this is what happened to me and this is, you know, and I and I, and I we do it as a you put it as like a number line on One end, it's chronological, right? So, like, one end is your youngest years, and it could be in reference to school. So, the way that I did it was elementary school, middle school, you know, uh, high school, college, grad school, you know. So, that's my number line. But Mm -hmm. I also tell them, you know, it could be anything. You know, we've had students who have had many years, many years in between, you know, sort of like those formal educational settings, but they're doing a lot of learning in other settings. Maybe it's a training, maybe it's the military, maybe it's like, um, you know, some some job that they've had that they had to learn a lot of things on the ground. So you can kind of do it however you want and you can share whatever you want. But um, it is an opportunity for us to kind of look at the long scope of your life and reflect and see, you know, um, you put the hard experiences, the hardships, the challenges, the obstacles, you actually place it below the timeline, and then yeah. the, 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 the things that um, you are proud of, maybe the achievements or, you know, just, just happy things that you remember that you want to put on that timeline, you put it above the timeline. And then there's, like, a bunch of reflection questions for them to just, you know, just to do that exploration. And I'll tell you, it is such an impactful um, experience to watch them go through it, even if they say that they're struggling with putting stuff down on paper. I said, you know, you can do it however you want to. You can, you can use an image that represents the time in your period of, of life that was difficult. You know, you can put, you know, a thorn on a rose, and that represents that. You could put a picture, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you have from Facebook that you just want to download and, and add on it. You can make it visual. You can do it on, you know, um, like PowerPoint or you can do it on a just paper, just handwritten. I don't care if you put it on a napkin. But take the time to try and see what you learn. And then we think about this question of resilience, right? If for the first Uh time they're doing somewhat of the same thing where they're identifying the, the times in their life where, you know, it's the most intense of intense hardships. And Then they also say, okay, you know, like, so, yes, my brother died, but that's also when I discovered writing as a means Mm -hmm. of expression. And then it it shifts the perspective, and then it's like, okay, well, now you're in college, you're in your first semester, there's going to be some hard things you experience. doesn't mean you're not learning anything from it. So, um so, yeah, so I just offer that as, like, just, a, just how I view. It's never been in sort of this, like, boxed-in formal setting of, of uh-huh. educational experiences. It's that lifelong, I'm a lifelong learner. Um, you know, what I give to my students has been, like, a legacy passed on to me from all of the people that I read and I learn from, um, you know, and, and that's it. That's an act of, like, freedom
3: work to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I like, especially even going back to the way that um, that your teacher did it, because and and the way that you do it, because sometimes when you're going through it, it it was, it would have been hard. I mean, you couldn't just walk in there and say, "Hey, mom, hey, dad, what about me?" You know, but you were right. feeling that, you know, you were feeling that, and the fact that she gave you agency to have your feelings,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
3: even and, and to recognize that. Yeah, maybe you would just, you know, some people say, oh well, kids, you know, they just get through it, they'll be fine. That you did have those feelings, and then, and like you said, as you find that people, especially, you know, life is challenging, and especially if you you've missed a while and you're coming back and you're getting ready, there has, can be a lot of things that, like, can be. You don't recognize your own resiliency. That yeah, here was this mm-hmm. storm, but look, you know, you came through on the other side. And like you, I yeah. find that writing and being able, be, sometimes it's easier to write it than it is to just, like, come out and sort of
2: talk to somebody,
3: you know, mm-hmm. until you're ready to. Mm-hmm.
2: It's definitely one of those things where I, I always kind of, um, I think about that teacher and I think about this educational timeline that we integrate over the semester, and it's a, it's a heart opener is what it is, you know, mm-hmm. it's a heart opening activity. Um, and, you know, and it allows this sort of, um, it breaks the wall a little bit because they'll hear, you know, I mean, that, that my brother's death was absolutely devastating for me, but I had lost a number of people from, for various reasons, um, you know, uh, people who had passed, uh, um, passed away, like between seven and age 11, you know, like, mm-hmm. A friend died in front of a, you know, a drunk driver in front of me. My rest of my Uh. grandparents died. My dad's business partner died. My uncle in India died. Like I was carrying a lot. Um, But you know, when you when you start to build that trust with someone who actually has this love and care and concern, and you know, allows you to have that agency, as we spoke about. you know, it's a great heart-opening activity for an elementary school kid um, and someone who hasn't been in school for 40 years and just any whole human who, you know, who takes the time to reflect on, on how they've been shaped. And having that knowledge is, is what shapes the next thing, right? Um, so when I work with my students, they, you know, I mean, they're writing about, all kinds of things. Of course, death of bio and chosen family members, of course, you know, certainly now, um, you know, in this era of COVID. um, But, you know, like other things that grief brings, like um, migration, foster care, hurricane survivors, bullying, so much bullying. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you create a, a container to just be able to say, hey, I can examine this in a way and feel supported in this, you know, it's the expression of it. It's articulation of it. But it's also, as you said, it's just like you're opening up this idea of um – um you know, how am I building my resilience by reflecting on my past? Um, because certainly that activity can be activating trauma. And I want to be really, you know, mindful of that as well. Um, but I have that in mind when, when we're working together. And the great thing about working at, you know, Bronson Community College and, and any, you know, college institution, like there's a counseling center, there's this, is that there's so many resources on campus, um, even virtually now, that they can identify areas of, support so say for example if there's housing instability someone has talked about um you know uh being evicted or or you know kind of in and out of homelessness well you know i can direct into the center that might be able to help them with housing or you know being able to get them um resources so um so it's kind of that it's like here's the 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 focus um is this activity but then it also means so much more
3: and you know and it's like We often say, you know, something will happen and you'll say, oh, I'm okay, or I handle it, and we sort of keep it bottled up. And sometimes it doesn't help you recognize or be able to reach out for support. How often do you hear people say, oh, it's really hard for me to, to ask for help and to look at, like, oh, well, what is it and what's going on and to recognize what's a safe way to ask for help but to recognize that, maybe you weren't okay maybe you were just like sort of sleepwalking through something but that that's an impediment to you going to that next step to, to sort of do it yeah mm. uh, i mean i like that even the part how you talk about the, the the homelessness because i mean we have a center here and um one of the kids was saying uh like she said oh i'm not homeless i've never been homeless and mm. everyone knew that she had and she said well you know i have got You know, I couch this. And, you know, and so to a certain point to recognize that she did have that insecurity about about having home and that that trust issues, but she also Mm. had a support system that she had found a way to do it. And eventually, you know, to sort of say to someone who thought that because she said she was okay, because she was sleeping on their couch for a while, that maybe she wasn't okay. And to sort of say, this is what I need, and then go engage in a program that was ha- able to take her from couch serving, surfing to more permanent housing,
2: mm-hmm. but it's sometimes yeah. we just
3: don't have the words. I mean, yeah. or we don't know how to find the words, and writing um, helps. I mean, it really mm-hmm. helps. Writing and mm-hmm. being able to to share it. Well, I want to take our first break. I want to talk a little bit more of your storytelling and your creating writing. And writing, because I mean that's one of the things that I found about you and that we've talked about, and I think it's like really important to be able to to share our experiences, and I can see where that carries over into your schoolwork. So um, we'll be right back.. here on collections run by Michelle Brown and I am talking with Marie Vargas and you know when you 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 had me at I write <laughs> 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 the, the, uh, yeah and and the fact of being storytelling and that's one of the things that I often tell people you know if you tell your story it might be your story but there'll be something that someone else understands from it or you open their eyes to it. I hear you talking about what you're doing with your students. And to me, that's and – and I'll tell you the other thing that I like is that you tell them. It doesn't have to be in words. You can draw a picture. You can cut out a picture. You can do it. in some sometimes that is so powerful, you know, to give people the ability to express themselves, but, but tell your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. You say in your Bible that you have a lineage of storytellers. who are the storytellers around you that inspired you?
2: Mm, that's such a great question um <laughs> so many um but you know sort of in my in my real uh formative childhood years, it was my father. Um, so, um, my parents grew up, uh, in Kerala in South India, and, um, they moved to New York city in the seventies, along with a long sort of like wave of migration of, um, Indians coming to the United States. Um, you know, my mom was a nurse and actually was the first person in her family to leave her, um, uh, like her community in Kerala. She went to nursing school in Goa and then came to United States. So she was like break out. Parson, you know, um, and then she came to New York, I lived there for a little while, We um, lived with her sister-in-law um, in uh, the Morningside Heights area, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but like around 113th Street in Amsterdam, like uh-huh. just generally in the area, and so um, my mom goes and uh, gets arranged marriage to my father, and then she likes to call him exo baggage. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. So that's how, um, you know, that's sort of like the, this formative, uh, you know, foundation stuff of, of, of that, of the migration history. Um, and in moving to New Jersey, um, which happened, right like, from the Bronx, I had moved after, like, I was one. Um, and I've been in a suburb of New Jersey about, I think I've told you this before, but about 10 minutes from Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And... Um, And I would just remember all of these times where my father would be on the phone or if we would have guests coming over, and he would start just doing this whole storytelling, you know, thing. And, you know, he was really essential in in building a lot of the infrastructure of um, the South Indian, particularly from people from Kerala. Um, We call ourselves Malayali. So the Malayali community that is here um, in the United States, he, he, like, you know, was part of the religious institutions, establishing the cultural institutions, social, community things. And so, um, so he was just a lot of, like, very much in the public eye. Meanwhile, you know, I was always, like, following him, but I was quiet. Um, but I would watch him when he would go on stage and give a speech, and I would watch him when he was, you know, at the head of the dining table and telling just funny stories. And <laughs> I always loved when people were coming over, because he never told those stories to me. He would tell Uh them when guests came. And so I loved that. Um, I loved when he was, the way that he kind of, um, you know, like there would be like a punchline and it would just sort of come in this natural way, like he, like just, you know, the legacy of oral tradition and storytelling is Uh so strong. And, um, and that was, it was just, it it sort of like, it was like this energetic magic, if you will,
0: (laughs) when Uh he would Uh share the
2: story. Um, I did not identify myself as a storyteller until much later in my life. Um, You know, I, as you know now, like, I channeled a lot of my feelings and, you know, into poetry and into writing, um, you know, prose pieces, this, that, and the other, but I was very quiet and I was very private in that sphere of my life. You know, um, like I was sociable and, you know, I had a really like strong community of friends. But when it came to writing, um, it wasn't until I was in high school and I had an amazing English teacher by the name of Mrs. Twombly who uh, was like head of the literary magazine and and helped me kind of break out of that shell. But, you know, when I looked to my father um, and the way that he would tell stories, um, I was mesmerized, as were Mm -hmm. so many other people in the room. And, and yeah, and so, like, he just had that quality about him, but he was not a creative writer in the sense that, you know, he's not sitting writing poems, you know, he's just, he was an orator. And uh-huh. so when I finally, towards the end of his life, um, he passed away in 2008, when I finally started sharing some stories with him that were our family stories, um, you know, and be like, you know, you always told me about when my mom first came to the United States, and my mom tells me about what that experience was like for her, thinking that she was going to be like, you know, the the darkest person in America. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. You know, shit mm-hmm. she didn't imagine getting into, um, you know, and I and I started writing those things down, and um and I remember telling you know sharing one story with him, and he was um he was at our local hospital on dialysis, and he was listening to me read it, and I could just see in his eyes how touched he was. That all along I had been sort of like compiling and and observing and writing things down in the quiet, you know, mm-hmm, um, in the quiet. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, but, I can, and so, I then can I, so relate I, with that. I, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. Um,
3: how My Uh huh. My father oh, told sorry. the greatest stories, and sometimes, I mean, you'd know the story. But you'd be happy when people would come over because it was like it was showtime you know, and you'd want to hear the story, so I can really relate to that uh, and but yeah. the fact that you got to tell your father stories you know that 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 golden time towards the the end of his his existence on this plane that you were able to tell him stories, read him stories, and he knew you'd been you know you'd heard.
2: Mhm Mhm yeah, absolutely. And I think that you know a lot of what I do write about it intersects with you know quite similar themes, um, grief and loss um, and resilience and family and community and belonging, like just you know broadly, all of those themes are there um, but yeah i think I, I think it was it was really through um you know part of that is like a definitely a foundation of my legacy, and then I also have to say that I've been very fortunate along the course of my life to have really kindred community people in my life who are also just amazing storytellers, so, um, you know, you, you, you know what it is. It's like it's, like, it's a gravitational mm-hmm. pull. You just find each other in the way, um, mm-hmm. and I think that the most important thing is to be like, you know, it's not just about the storytelling. It's about the listening as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
3: Well, um, you sent me a, a piece that you wrote, which to me, um, and I read it, and I mean I thought of so many people, so many people who I have interacted with who have been uh, Latino, who have been Asian, who have been Native American, who have been black, who who have this, this story. In fact, I knew someone who um, – whose parent had been blind, both of her parents had been blind. And as I read Reflections of the glass Divide that you sent me, I thought of all of them. And stories Mm. that, and again, stories that they had told me of something similar. So, you know, like it's like, this is your story, but as I read it, I thought of all these people who had told me that. And, that's part of, you know, and and people don't want to talk about, but that is part of the American experience. And now we see they want to show you, you know, only when it's something horrible, you know, oh, look, and and the the Asian woman got beat up and everything, but it's these little microaggressions, these little Mm -hmm. hills that you go through each and every day that I have heard people who I have been around, grew up with, met all along, and when I read this, which is also the beauty of writing, I got it. I felt it in my gut, and so for that, I thank you, and if you would, grace us by reading Reflections of the Glass Divide, and then after you finish
2: Shilda, we can talk about that, okay? Sure, sure.
3: Okay. Um, it would
2: be absolute pleasure and a deep, deep honor. Uh, so as you said, this piece is called The Reflection of the Glass Divide. Excuse me, ma'am, but I don't understand what you're saying. These are the words that pierced my mother on our Tuesday morning trips to our local bank. Each week, the bank teller silently bemoans our arrival and averts her eyes, desperately searching for other matters that might demand her attention. Amma awaits her turn with a practiced patience, but finally severs her silence with a request for a deposit slip. The teller hastily passes her the small tricolored sheet while her face crunches up tightly with annoyance. She feels the eternity it takes for my mother to count her checks, unconcerned with the possibility of Amma not having enough money to go grocery shopping later. This is the way it's been every Tuesday morning for as long as I can remember. Yet the bank teller treats my mother with mechanical anonymity week after week. Her frigid green eyes grow irritable as Amma tries to articulate her needs, but she is clearly annoyed at the Indian accent that pulls at the corners of her tongue. Amma's Curry stained syllables dispense unwanted reminders of a throbbing dissonance the bank teller would rather avoid. I preserve this woman's image across the unforgiving glass divide that separates my mother's accent from the teller's American one. My mother's eyes plead to be rescued from this business, so I step forward to repeat the same question Amma had asked just moments before. I catch the sense of relief on the bank teller's face when she realizes that my accent matches her own. She begins the transaction and I realize that the bank teller refuses to understand my mother. She'll never know that my mother now weathers a monsoon of doubt in the American dream. She'll never know that my mother's fingers courageously joined together to fist fight the moon defying the turbulent Air India flight that transported her to the land of plenty. The bank teller only sees her worn hands, now sandy and trembling with age. Amma promptly places the week's money in a small brown envelope, afraid that her Indian accent will seep out the beads of sweat on her knuckles and smear George Washington's face. Umma holds her head up high, and like a warrior, swaggers out of the bank ahead of me, instead of walking the solemn shuffle of those scarred by this place called America. That is
3: just, that is just beautiful. I mean, and it happens. I mean, I mean, I know people with disabilities, Mm Mhm. You know. I have a friend who has a severe speech impediment. She stutters. And the way that you know that that look. I mean I mean I can all of that, those words and telling that is so, so very powerful.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. It means a I lot to it. hear you say it. It really uh, does. Or
0: not.
2: Uh, in part because I just, you know, because I, I, you know, when I wrote it, I I didn't, I wrote it because it was the experience that was at the forefront of my mind. And I, in fact, I wrote this 20 years ago when I was in college myself. Um, it has just kind of resurfaced <laughs> over this year's, uh-huh. um, you know, COVID and quarantine and, and all the things, um, and then there's a story about that as well. But I, I will say that what, what's so powerful for me as, you know, as a writer and as a reader is that, you know, I get to share this with you, and then you have all of these other experiences that, I, that you recall. And mm-hmm. that's such a gift to me.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. I mean, it, it is so, I mean, and even, and I'll tell you, and not only as I did I think about all of those other people, I could be that daughter and i could i could, I felt myself as that daughter and, and and you know and it was just like so many words are so are so friggin powerful. I mean it's just like and when people write, and I often encourage people who I'm, you know to write even something that experience. You know, for someone who didn't know other people who did it, maybe, just maybe for a moment, it will open their heart and mind.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that sort of, um, you know, the the way that this emerged for me, like reemerged really, um, was I, you know, I wrote this in college. Um, mm-hmm. It was an assignment, a summer class that – I was taking it at Rutgers University, which is where I went to school. And the class was called Poetry of Protests. Uh-huh. And it, it was fantastic. It was just a, a fantastic moment in life because that is the summer that I got introduced to Audre Lorde's writing. Uh-huh. And I had two friends who were with me. And, it, you know, it's so funny now because back then we would have never known, but we would, like, sit next to each other in this class and um, – Silis Marzullo is, she's like a program coordinator now at Rutgers for the Center for Latino Arts and Culture. Um, and uh, Claudia Sofia Garriga-Lopez, who is an assistant professor um, at uh, Cal State University at Chico. Um, she's a professor of queer and trans Latinx studies. So, like, these were the two people. We were all, the three of us were sitting in that class, and then we read achi Lord's Transformation of Silence into Language and in Action. Uh-huh. And that is what? it came after that assignment mm-hmm.
0: and they were wow. like, you know,
2: just writing, you know, related to this essay. Um, and that was it, you know, it was the three of us. And, it, and the, obviously, you know, that essay has made such a definitive and deep impact in our lives at the time, you know, as, um, as people of color, as, as students, as critical thinkers, as activists, you know, we poured over that essay. And then after we read the essay was when, you know, we started writing these response assignments to it. And so that's where that piece comes from. And, um, and it was so powerful. So then fast forward to, you know, 2020. And, you know, Claudia calls me out of the blue and tells me that she's teaching um, a couple of courses in her, in, I think it was graduate classes. And there was one sort of a introduction to in multicultural and gender studies. And, and there's a class called Latina Power. And she wanted to know if she could use the piece in conversations with other readings that she had assigned with Audre Lord and, you know, Maxine Hong Kingston. So, of course, I was totally floored that she had even remembered it after all these years. Uh-huh. So I was like, yeah, of course, of course, you know. Um, and then so, you know, that, there was a conversation that happened there with her students, um, and it was really moving, you know, as they discussed children as translators, um, shared experiences of women of color. And just, you know, just as you're saying, it brings up so much, you know, even if the, the, the context in which the piece shifts and changes, you know, from the lens of the reader, there's, like, this, like, access point into something that is also personally yours. Um, and I think that was, you know, it was, so, so, so that was sort of how it reemerged, And then I, um, I casually mentioned it. Uh, to one of my colleagues in the Katie Start program, to my colleague Teresa Beniquist, who is the uh, reading and writing instructor um, in our program. And, and she says, Wait a minute, wait a minute, let me see this. I want to see it. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was like, Okay, you know, and she was like in the process of piloting some new pieces in the curriculum. And, you know, I gave it to her and I was like, You know, just sure, I'll be happy to share And then she's like, Let's try this to put this into the class. And I would, like, say what, you know, but it felt like an honor, and I was, like, totally down for it. Um, and the thing was is that what I love that Teresa did is that she did not tell my students that I wrote it. We made that agreement before sharing it, uh-huh. Uh-huh. that in a an anonymous piece, and, you know, for a time, uh, because, you know, so that they could have more honesty in, in how they were interpreting it. Um and you, know, and, and, you know, we're in the context of working with, uh, you know, students who have, you know, what's called remedial or developmental needs. They're kind of uh, like gaining academic proficiency in reading and writing, right, so that they can take college credit classes. And so the, the conversations are very different. And we have a, a, co, a co-teacher, writing support teacher, who is um, really, really brilliant. Her name is Anita Santiago. And... Um, and, you know, and, and so, like, as they break this stuff down, they're defining what does bemoan mean? The, mm. the, you know, the bank teller silently bemoans mm-hmm. her arrival. What is bemoan, you know? What is, you know, averts her eyes. What does the word avert mean? And so here we are translating this into a Zoom call with our students in remote learning. How are you going to do this? I haven't even seen the faces of some of these students, you know, because the cameras are off. And here they all are on this Google Doc with a piece of highlighting the words they don't know or understand. And they're doing it together, uh-huh. which is amazing. So you kind of saw, you could watch the Google Doc sort of come alive, and, you know, um, like they would just add comments. You know, what does it mean? I'm a curry stained syllable? What does that evoke for you? What does that mean? And so they just sort of respond in real time with each other as they were thinking it through and figuring it out. And so that is also really powerful, too, because I didn't know that that was going to be the afterlife of this piece also, you know, that it would help build their vocabulary, but also that they were going to be reflecting on it. So, like, I just feel like some of the most powerful responses were when students talked about how the piece related to them. Mm -hmm. And it was just a range of things. You know, one student talked about, um, you know, the, I guess the, the question was, um, have you witnessed or experienced this kind of discrimination? You know, and so, you know, students, one student connected it to um, the, um, his name is Christian Cooper. He's a black bird watcher in the Rambles of Central Park. And um, there was a white woman who called 911 on him. Um, mm-hmm. So just that in the news. And being able to kind of use that as a way to process what is happening both in the piece but also the way that you interpret what's happening out in the world right now, like that was really amazing and impactful. Uh Um, We had a lot of students, a lot of students who who were said that, you know, in the course of the nature of their work, they were being told at some point in in various iterations, essentially, go back to where you came from, go back to your country. Uh Mm-hmm. And how this is their first encounter, really, with racism and xenophobia. And you know, we're talking about sort of the quote-unquote American dream, and you know, and and they're articulating this contradiction in the American dream, as they initially understood it, and how they understand it now, having had those experiences. And like just the idea of like these students from the Bronx, you know, grocery store workers, fast food workers. Uber drivers, childcare workers, you get it. I mean, these are their workplaces. These are actual, you know, these are lived day-to-day experiences outside of the classroom. So,
3: and you, you know, and I think, too, like, that they breaking down the words, like, avert, because you might see that and to recognize that this is something that's directed at you, okay, that it's not just, you know, her, her look, like, oh, that person is just tired. It's it. it it fleshes out, you know, it, it makes you understand more, you know, that this is what I'm seeing. This is what I've been seeing. I didn't have, might not have had the language for it. I might have given her a pass that oh, she's just tired and here I come. But no, she wasn't just tired and here I come and I'm. it's, it's taking a bit longer. That she was averting, mm-hmm. you know, she didn't want to do me. She didn't want to be with me. She was mm-hmm. bemoaning my existence. Here here they come, you know, not wanting, you know, her job is to be a teller and serve everyone. But when she sees this coming in, you know, you might look up and, and, and look at the people on the line and, and notice someone. So before it was just like maybe you just took it.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, so mm-hmm. that
3: exercise right then and there, I mean, as far as Expanding your universe and and you know giving you a little and antenna to discrimination you know <laughs> yeah. mm. that that part right then and there it's like in and of itself you know the pieces the pieces pretty 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 awesome but in and of itself that they went and and like dug into it you know just like so, yeah. you know really got into it right
2: right right and then related it to just these like it's just these moments right like it's a microaggressive it's a moment um I, you know i had a student who talked about um you know experiencing homophobia on the new york city subways and street corners and that that was like where the access point was for this piece related to their own lives and mm-hmm. you know it's just it's there an apple Latinx person and talking about being followed around in a store um, you know, uh-huh. that there's, like, so many of those moments, but also, like, it builds a sense of empathy because when they're talking about it, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Gosh, that must uh-huh. have been terrible, you know? And and that is also illuminating, right? Because it's, like, so many different angles. And then, you know, it's this lived experience that feels so shared um, that you can unpack it safely. Uh-huh. Wow, that is interesting. So,
3: <laughs> excuse me. When did they tell them
2: that you wrote it? <laughs> So it was after they had done their initial sort of group processing about the piece and figuring out the words and all of that, and then they had to write these response assignments that I hadn't even necessarily, like, I, I didn't even have access to, um, but the um, the two teachers I was mentioning, they, um, you know, took in all of the assignments, so it was, it was uh, maybe a couple of days after that, and, you know, I'm, I'm the advisor for the cohort, so I just... <laughs> always coming in, like making announcements or just, you know, doing an icebreaker or something. And so um, so they're like, oh, Marie's going to come on to the Zoom call. And uh, and then it sort of just like suddenly happens. So then it becomes like an author talkback. And mm. when they realize that I am the author, <laughs> they just flipped. It was the cutest. Like it was very endearing. I just, I was so taken because you could just hear, and again, this is happening all on a Zoom call. Imagine, right? Uh-huh. Um, so, just lots of uh, exclamation points happening, um, and then, and then, uh, so I, you know, I talked to them, and then they asked me really, really interesting pieces about the piece because since it didn't have a name attached to it, who it was written by, they were they were debating amongst themselves of, you know, what they understood to be the gender of the person writing it so was it a son was it a daughter you know those weren't even questions that I had thought about because in in the past Mm -hmm. my name was attached to it so there was always some kind of an assumption but like they were having some really you know good debating about it um and and they asked you know they were like I'm so sorry that this that you experienced this Marie and I was just like you know I've written this so long ago like I, I this doesn't hit me in the same way of when I first experienced it and, you know, just being able to connect it to something that you are not, like, have experienced in your life in the last year and a half um, makes it something different for me. Um, so, like, when we, I don't know, just, like, when I, I think about writing, oftentimes when you're writing trauma and you're still traumatized by the things that you're writing about, um, it's a very activating sort of thing. But mm-hmm. when you have, people that you care about in a classroom, you know, both teachers and other students, you know, who deeply want to know what, um, what was going on for you at the time when you were experiencing that, you know, incident, whatever it was, um, is really deep. So then the bonus thing was uh, the first semester that, I, that we did this um, was, in the, was last year, um, spring 2020. So it was the, we had actually gone through our program for about a month. And then we all moved online suddenly, <laughs> you know, in very rapid fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So, so, you know, so this was people that – these were students that we had seen and interacted with the first few weeks, and then we went all online. And so just even that experience, I think, created, like, a much deeper bonding um, that nobody would have ever necessarily anticipated had all of this, you know, year of COVID, you know, had it not happened – but then at the end of this, so I share my, you know, my thoughts, and they're asking Q&A. It's, like, amazing. And then, you know, my, my mom lives with my wife and I, so I ask them, I'm like, do you guys want to meet my mom? Uh-huh. And so they're like, yeah. Another thing would never happen, right, if we were just in the classroom, uh-huh. I take my laptop, and I just go down the stairs. And I had met my mom before. I said, you know, like, my students want to meet you. So, like, then she came, you know, like, I came to the couch, and I brought them. And you know what the funniest thing and the most amazing thing is that they turned their cameras on, all of them, at once. Uh uh-huh. And they were just, like... So, you know, into having a conversation with her, and, and she gave them a pep talk. She was like, you know, I was in, you know, the Bronx. I started there, too. I was a nurse for 30 years in the Bronx, and, you know, you guys can do it. It's like, what is happening right now with this conversation? <laughs> um, oh, uh, so, what have I unleashed? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, is no, that,
3: that is... Know,
2: even if the at the end of that, right? So then, and then after that conversation, I, you know, we go back. I go back, you know, to my makeshift office room, and um, and one of the first things that comes in the chat is a student who um, who's basically living, you know, on his own. Um, has migrated from another country and had said he's just like I really miss my mom, uh, and oh. that was really sweet and deep and you know, um, but he's also such a resilient, incredible person. And, you know, is so resourceful and and all of these things, but that was such a tender moment where he was really held by his other classmates too, you know. So just being able to share, to get to that place um, was magical and and one of the most memorable things that I will take from uh, remote learning Mm 2020-2021.
3: What was your conversation with your mother like after this?
2: That's very funny that you asked that. I mean, not funny, but I guess my response is is uh is complex. Um so I write a lot about my family, um, you know, just as a topic because it is it is what I want to be writing about. Um but I don't really share a lot of my writing with my mom. And when I prepped her, I you know, I said I had my students and they, they want to meet you and I, you know, I wrote this piece. Do you remember when we had that thing about the bank? I had never even told her that I had written that piece. Uh-huh. Um, because I think that her view on moments like that is, you know, there's, like, some something, like, around shame, right? Like, so, like, don't tell uh-huh. other people. Don't let other people know that that happened to us, you know? Um, uh-huh. And so, so, of course, all of my writing is breaking down all of these shame barriers and, you know can't fit into any box um and so yeah so the so the conversation that i had with her after was you know it was pretty brief um i like thanked her for for um for talking to them and to kind of give them that little you know joyous moment and pep talk and and uh and it was sweet and and then she kind of just carried on with her day um she didn't think too too much of it Hmm. Hmm.
3: yeah Uh, yeah because i mean not only does it talk about and i you know and that's the thing that said that there would be a part of shame to it. And there's, you know, there's absolutely nothing to be, to be ashamed about, you know, um, mm-hmm. drinking that she went on and then that she was able to tell her how then she had to study your career as a nurse and everything. That was yeah. just, that was one of the parts of it, but the way that it is. And then, like I said, I had an aunt who, um, had been a domestic worker mm. and, she was like, you know, but then she, you know, how she kept on doing things. But if you brought that up, and she would talk about how sometimes if she went in the bank, that they they assumed that she was, you know, Doctor So and So's. Oh, it's Doctor So and So's, you know, maid. And she, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and that maybe she was dealing with herself. Until so there's parts that she was like really embarrassed about it and said, oh, don't tell people about that. But it's like, you know. You were strong. You did that. And a lot of what she did and, and and what she put up with, you know, we averted eyes and we talked down to, meant that she was able to, she put aside, she didn't have children, but she put took care of her sister and brother's kids. She made sure that they had things. But mm-hmm. the, like you said, there was that part of shame. And then I was, you know, I was fortunate. I, uh, although I, I sometimes call people, I had my death and dying 10 years, you know, like my mother died, mm-hmm. my father died, then his sister died, and then this mm-hmm. aunt died, and I and I became the caregiver successively for each one. Wow. But, and hearing these stories, and then they tell me, they said, you know, I am so proud of you.
2: Mm-hmm. And she was mm-hmm. like,
3: oh, but, you know, i was I had to wash clothes and do all this and and I you know don't talk about that. I said, you know if not for that, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't yes. be able to do some of the things that I did, and it was it's just sort of like that's the everything that comes from that you know mm-hmm. that I can see that if you are a student and maybe that you're standing on the on the sidelines watching your parents go through that, that maybe they have a shame, maybe you're feeling it, but then to also to be able to recognize it and to know that, you know, you were proud of her. Yes. You know, you were yeah. indignant about what had happened, but there was a pride mm-hmm. you know, that you had, you know, which is which is which is just like amazing. Well, I yeah. wanna take our next break and then I wanna get finish with that and then go into what you're doing and the students that you're working with. So we'll be right back. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm talking with Marie Vargas. Um, Marie, you know, you are a child of immigrants. You grew up here. Many of the students who you deal with are also children of immigrants, and they're people who are maybe they're, they're the first generation going. And um, I know that uh, I, was, I remember telling you that I had had a guest on uh, a young man was from Chicago he was at first generation to go to college there was these expectations of of people in the neighborhood in the neighborhood people in Mm. their immediate community and his family of what he needed to do and then he had gone to public schools in Chicago done okay And he was supposed to go, you know, he had got a thing to go to Northwestern, and he went to a program similar to what you have that mm. helped prepare him. And, like, he was telling me that when he did graduate from Northwestern, all of a sudden the enormity of all of these hopes and dreams he was carrying on his shoulders just sort of hit him, that after he walked across the stage, he sat down and just cried. And. Mm. Um, when, do you see in some of the students that you're advising, are, are they bra- carrying that load, I won't call it baggage, but that, that load from their families, their community, and also mm-hmm. having so often been let down by the public school or the regular school system to not prepare them for that,
2: do you see them coming to you with that? yeah most definitely I think that is precisely what is what draws me to this work is that I'm not afraid of that load <laughs> you know uh-huh. Uh-huh. um, you can bring it bring it to then we can you know spend time looking at it together and it's not and I think that what is so important, you know what I've learned over the years is to just create a nurturing space where it's just there's just not that level of judgment like i'm not going to project my opinion and of you know and shame and things on you like it's not going to have to be all that and sometimes uh-huh. that's the first time that they have ever shared anything mm-hmm. that is going on with their lives that 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 they're grappling with um you know and so I, you know i say that i like i work in collaboration with all of these amazing offices on campus that do other types of support for students. But, you know, oftentimes as, you know, a, an advisor for a, a first-year program, um, you know, it's a college transition program. So they haven't, and, and now, you know, in the last year and a half, none of these students have even been on the campus yet. You know, I can't uh-huh. wait for them to see it when it's safe enough to be there. Um, but, but yeah, no, like what you're saying about um, this long it's like the it's the long journey you know like the the reason why they may not come to class is it can range it it can range you could be on like you know you're like getting an organ transplant and, and you know uh-huh, you have to go huh apartment like you are um you know you're taking care of your kid brother or you know and and like just it's it's really hard for you to do both their their zoom school and your zoom school um you know it could be your you know I had a student who actually had um she had like just given birth over the course of the semester came back to class two days later wow this semester you know um uh-huh and so so I think that you know you you kind of you grow like a certain level of strength to just to not advisement for me is more about just listening to who you are and what are you dreaming about? And how can we connect those dreams to a career and an academic major? And I'm not going to be there for the, you know, up until like the graduation point advising you and registering you for classes. No, this is about just the initial point. Because when you start reflecting on what your dreams are, that that's going to be when you have run into the hard stuff again, or new hard stuff, you get to zoom out and remember your bigger purpose. And Mm -hmm. so like, I feel like it's very much um, like the work that I have done as an educator is also very, very much informed by um, my college experience. As I said before, um, you know, I went to Livingston College, which is a part of Rutgers University, and it opened in 1969. Um, it had really radical roots. And... Um, you know, the intent was to sort of increase the student and faculty diversity, to increase access to low-income folks, you know, BIPOC, non-traditional students, you know, all the things. Um, and so the more that I grew into college advising, the more I realized that the college advising that was happening in my life when I was a college student was, you know, I mean, that, that's what kept me there. Um, because I had that same similar experience of a really strong network of, of people and resources that helped me get through what I didn't know, because, you know, I didn't have any help with my college applications. <laughs> I didn't
0: uh-huh.
2: know where, I didn't know the first thing. And, and then so I'm sitting there, you know, right before working at Bronx Community College, I worked at a high school in the South Bronx. And um, – And there were so many immigrant um, students who were working on their applications for college and didn't know that they needed to put their apartment number in Mm. the address of the application. And so it's a very humbling experience, you know, like leave the judgment to the side. They didn't know, you know, like oftentimes, Uh sometimes when you're in other countries, like it's an intersection of streets and, and, you know, there's many ways to to determine an address that are just not um, that don't necessarily include an apartment number. So um, you know, so it is just being really humble and listening to what their needs are. But um, this morning when I was thinking about how impactful Livingston College was for me, um, I pulled this, uh, this little quote that I want to share with you from, um, it's like the, it was from the initial college undergraduate catalog in 1969 for Livingston students. It's a few sentences. It just says, Livingston College will have no ivory towers. It cannot. Our cities are decaying. Many of our fellow men are starving. Social injustice and racism litter the earth. Weapons of awesome destruction threaten our existence. The times we live in are revolutionary and bewildering. Radical change has become the rule. Understanding and mastering that change has become a necessity. Livingston students will need to get a sense of the transformation occurring around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. you know,
3: and that's what you know. That's what it's supposed, you know, academia should be about. It should uh, that the college atmosphere, and you know, and the fact. And I I guess I ask because you're doing everything on Zoom now. Mm -hmm. Back and we know that not only for um, BIPOC students, many in the LGBTQIA community, college was where we hit our stride. We were able to come out mm-hmm. and we were able mm-hmm. to develop, find other people. Like maybe you you thought you were the only one and here's at GSA, you know, here's a place where you can go and, and, and you know, there's a whole room of gay people uh, or you can go and you can find a whole group of uh, immigrant community. There are people who you can relate to and right. outside of your community and be yourself. How, how do you, you know, right now you're doing everything on Zoom. Will those resources be there for a diverse student population when they go back? And how do you do it? Because I'm, like I said, I know a lot of, of queer kids, and that's where they discovered. In fact, I know the first really that there was a gay community I discovered on campus. Okay, so mm-hmm. how how. How are you preparing for this? How do you address this part in this Zoom age and prepare them for being, will it be there and also to prepare them for that, that this resource
2: will be here for you? Right. Right. Right, right. Um, I love this question. It's a very important question, and I think it is a question that, you know, colleges and universities around the country are trying to grapple with, really. So in a Zoom environment, um, it's very different because you're not actually on campus, but we are constantly in uh, sort of in deep engagement with, with like, the website so that we can show them, hey, this is here, this is there. Um, And so what we do is um, we have them do some online exploration just to see what offices are there. And, of course, when I'm having individual conversations with students, Um, I can definitely say, like, here are some of the offices that I think will be really useful for you. And in the last couple of years, we've been very fortunate to have an LGBT center at BCC, and we've had a women's center that is doing really tremendous work, and they're doing it also online. They're doing it on Zoom. So you'll get a broadcast, you know, from the women's center and saying, you know, we're doing this, you know, amazing event, and, um, you know, and, and then the students receive that and then they can join and be part yeah. of some community. And, you know, I mean, obviously it's not the same thing as being in the same presence of people. But, yeah. um, but I know students who, who are part of these support programs or, you know, of campus resources or, you know, initiatives and they are finding each other. But I think, you know, having an experience where you're in a college transition program like ours where we're so deeply invested in building community, creating a sense of belonging, creating a sense of home, and then you look for it. If you have a model of what it looks like, what it could look like, you keep your eyes peeled, you know, and it's Uh not easy. It's not easy. Sometimes, you know, I I had a student um, who shared with me that he, Like, after his first year, he really only had one friend. Um, And, you know, it's different when you're walking on campus. You can be walking to the library and have an encounter with someone and, you know, strike up a friendship, but it has to be a little bit more intentional if you are doing things online. But I know that our faculty, our staff, our people, we are working overtime to make sure that we provide opportunities for students to connect to services. So there are certain points over the course of the semester, like, you know, we start with orientation. Um, you know, you had mentioned earlier about, um, you know, with, with someone that you knew who who just like dealing with disabilities, you know, like there's an office of disability services um, that, that works to increase access needs for students. But if you don't know that the office exists, how are you going to find, you know, how are you going to get the services? <laughs> Um and so so we do some of that work and then in, in terms of uh like just being a bridge builder to to send them to these places um where and then you know if if they don't know how to have that conversation, we'll talk to them about how to have the conversation with the person in the office that you're now unfamiliar with because it's it's new for you. But in terms mm-hmm. of like the queer and trans students, um they have just been delightful on campus over Zoom. It's actually been amazing. I've had you know, quite a few people come out to me over the course of, um, you know, I mean, over the years, but I mean, like, even just over the conversations over Zoom, um, you know, uh, trans folks who feel comfortable sharing, um, and some of that is because at that point, you know who I am, you know, like, I have, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. very, like, and, and saying, like, you know, it's all the things that I was dealing with, you know, in my educational timeline, if you continue on to middle school when I came out and all the things, so so some of it is that, that's, like, not, that's been built over time. I didn't necessarily feel safe when I when I, remember I first started a job. I'm like, okay, like, what's the climate here, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. um, for a binary person, <laughs> for a femme like me? Um, but I have seen people, um, you know, even in class to be able to share some of their experiences. Like, you know, like I had shared earlier that, you know, if they're if they're sharing a microaggression that that they experience because they're queer then, you know, they might find comrades who also may identify with being part of the LGBT community, but also then other people who were just like, you know, like, I want to support you because you're my classmate and you're my friend. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, I mean, we're fortunate enough to live in New York City. There are a million resources. But I remember in the very beginning of the pandemic when we first came online, I had this spreadsheet. It was like a... It was a many, 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 it was like Google folders upon Google folders <laughs> mm-hmm. of resources to just make sure that if in case any student needed anything, it was like arranged by topic. It was color coded. Like I go, I went in, you know, because I knew the resources on campus, but I was, you know, just, we were just all figuring things out. Um, and then how, you know, how to access resources during COVID, especially in the beginning was so hard. Um but I but there are there are resources, there are circles of support. Um I have seen really beautiful, you know, connections of um of folks just kind of like being able to bond um uh-huh. over gender identity and over sexuality and all those things and, and there are like they have moved those services online and are attempting to provide as much as they can and I really um you know I commend my colleagues who are doing that work. Because that's, you know, it's, um, it's a different kind of holding space because then it's for the rest of the college. It's not just the program that I'm in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Now, I hope that I know your you co-
3: oh, yeah. Okay. Now, you, I was reading to that you said you focus on three independent areas of college success, academic mm. content, academic behaviors, and academic systems. Now, a few years ago, I met Kathy Cohen. She's at the University of Chicago. I had mm-hmm. I knew people who went there, and we were talking about how it was still structured, although they had done a lot more with trying, like having women's studies and and mm-hmm. African American studies and all like that but often that that being able to navigate the content the behaviors and the systems still was something those things were based on an old school system, you know even though they might have come you were going to hit somebody who was going to expect you to do this, that, and the other. And many of the kids who came there weren't prepared for this. I have a friend who who went there and it was like knock on wood, they had taken a program similar to yours that it prepared them for what they had to do. And they said it was a whole lot more work than, than you know, than high school. But there was mm-hmm. also like um, – She said, like, she also recognized that often when she went into the classroom, she was the Mm -hmm. only one. She could not be Mm -hmm. late. She had Mm -hmm. to be prepared. She had Mm to have an answer because, you know, it was like, like it or not, she stuck that like a proverbial, you know, sore thumb, you know. And the pressures that that made for her and, you know, she just sort of like hung in there and stuck it out. When I was talking to Kathy, she said that often she'll find, she doesn't see people who had graduated who would come back because, you know, they would talk about how how tough that had been on them as a person of color, as someone who was queer, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Do you see that, and how do you help people who come through your program prepare for, like, this ain't, this ain't high school anymore, <laughs> you know. This is what you're going to hit, and, and how do you prepare for it Without losing your identity or feeling, to draw upon that resilience yeah. that they're finding and doing some of these these, these exercises that you do with them.
2: Mm-hmm. hmm Such a good question. I think that um, for me, as you know, an advisor in in this context, um, when I share um, when I share things. Um, resources and also, the, you know, I mean, the, the idea of academic behavior, like that sounds a little clunky to me, honestly, <laughs> but uh-huh. you, if you unpack it, okay, so how does this relate? So I, so some of the things that I do is I do one-on-one advisement for students, um, and, and those right now are, you know, in the context of Zoom calls, um, so there'll be appointments throughout the year, but I also teach a college readiness seminar class, and I do that once a week, and we go over all of these, like, you know, topics that are related to college success, but, you know, we have our spin on how we want to present that information. So it's everything from, like, time management to exploring your major, figuring out how that might co- connect to careers, but a really essential portion of it is about self-advocacy. And what does that even mean? How do you advocate for yourself? And I think that, you know, part of the things that we want to connect students with is that there are many ways that you have already been advocating for yourself you've been doing this work, it just may have been in a different context. So let's show you how it works in navigating the campus at, at, here at BCC, which is like you know a new academic home for yourself, but you have to know the people, the offices, the resources, and you have to be prepared. So I teach, um, you know, in response to to many um, to many emails that I received and, and just experiences hearing from from other colleagues, um, we created this lesson on communication, like how to communicate in a college environment. And this was something that I did like years ago, and it was really just an experimental lesson to see how it would go, because ultimately I had so many people tell me, you know, my students just don't know how to write an email. Like I cannot hmm. decipher what it is that they want in an email. Sometimes it's like the entire um, uh, uh, question that they have is just in the subject of the email and then there's no, nothing in the body of it when you click on it. Um, sometimes it's just not, you know, worded in a way that is really uh, easy to, to, to digest and to understand what is it that is really like that you want to, to ask me. So... Um, So we talk about communication skills, and you know, we talk about you know different formal environments and informal environments, and then I actually just go down and break down and say, here are some of the things. You know, I mean, I don't like calling it necessarily email etiquette, but these are some of the expectations about Uh writing an email. But let's let's just like break it down, okay? So we know the two. Uh, Okay, fine. And then we're going to the CC. The CC. What does CC mean on an email? If I'm trying to CC you on something, I don't know. Carbon Mm -hmm. copy what that is you know what is that exactly exactly Uh um and then we go to the bcc and then they're like what does bcc mean i don't know but that's the thing it's like it's 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 at it's at their fingertips 24 7 but they just were never taught and that's not their fault Uh it's just not you know like it's just it's but it's like you once once you learn it then you want to share that with other people right so, um, you know, if you're contacting the financial aid office, how do you identify yourself? How do you be strategic about the questions that you ask? Um, if you're interacting with someone um, from a particular office, make sure you get the name of the person that you speak with. It's a simple thing, but I can't tell you how many times we have this, you know, like a conversation. And I was like, okay, do you know who he spoke with? Whatever. And, I, you know, I had said it before to make sure you get that. Um, or even if you're walking into an office and having a little notebook, like, ready to take notes. These are like those little tricks of trade that, you know, the funniest thing is mm-hmm. that um, once the students leave me, I get, a little, I get a little message here and there and say, you know what, I'm really glad you taught me that <laughs> because now I'm like dealing with this whole other situation and I have to go back and forth. And, and I see them advocating for themselves and it's tremendous, you know, and I think the most important thing is that I don't want to disconnect you from who you, who you are by learning, you know, we're just adding some more tools to your tool belt, uh, toolkit, uh-huh. so that you can, you know, um, it's almost as if the email is just like it's a different genre, like, you know, it's different than, than other kinds of writing. You're writing all the time, but if you continue to use email the way you continue to use text messages and you have emojis all over the place, then, you know, I mean, it will, it will be a little bit challenging sometimes for you to get your point across, um, but be who you are, you know, you um, know, mm. Developing relationships is so key, and so being able to verbalize, uh, you know, the ways in which you self advocate for yourself, you know, to be able to do it, you know, verbally. I've had students. One remarkable thing in, in Zoom learning that has really humbled me is I have students who um, who are in the class who do not want to talk, um, mm. and it is often connected to trauma that has you know been experienced, not entirely, but sometimes certainly that, and. You know, they may have their camera on, but they're not going to say anything. But, but the interesting thing about this online learning environment is that we say, hey, here's another batch of tools. We have the, the Zoom chat, and you can type in what you want to share and what you want to say. And that, And I have some students who are primarily using the chat feature which Uh is still communicating, it is still participation. It doesn't have to look the way that, you know, one imagines class participation is you raising your hand all the time, you know. But if you're not someone who feels comfortable dominating a conversation, but you're okay writing it down, what I love to see is that over the course of the semester, you know, it starts in the chat, and then maybe it starts just like, you know, they'll participate verbally in class one day, you know, and you always want to spotlight and say, hey, I noticed that. Like, I uh-huh, noticed uh-huh. hey, that. That's dope. That's a wonderful thing. Like, how do you uh-huh. feel? You know? And so you're just sort of, like, kind of building confidence along the way. And, you know, I have year, from years past that have said that the communication lesson has been very helpful. Um, uh-huh. But I think, you know, being able to blend, it's a delicate balance, right, Michelle? Like, it's being able to blend who you are, um, with the way that you advocate for yourself and finding value in that.
3: Well, you know, it's almost like, you know, there's that code, okay? We can call Mm -hmm. it the patriarchal code. You know, they know how to do all of that. I mean, and so it's sort of like, you know, and where it's like, okay, do it your way, but this is the code. This is how you do it so that, like you said, you're to, your email is going to get read. It's going to get to the right people. You know, you're not redoing mm-hmm. it, but without giving up yourself, because really coming in and bringing in all these other things makes the communication richer. But if you mm-hmm. don't know what the code is, somebody else is going to who does. You know, know the secret handshake. <laughs> they're, they're getting over, and it's sort of like when women started going into the workplace, when communities of color started going to the workplace, and we have to know. You know, tell us the code. If you tell us the code, we're gonna break the system. You know, <laughs> we're gonna, right. we're gonna expand and blow up the system and make it bigger and better. And I think that that's that, that's what what people need to know. So like, if they're averting their eyes, you know, <laughs> you know what's up. Uh-huh. If You come in and so and so is averting. You know what what they're doing. You're they're right. not just having a bad day. It's about you. And then how do you? Make sure that your seat is at the table, that you call them to task, that you make sure that you get the advancement and and the recognition that you deserve. And like you said, now with using this, there's a way you can comment in chat, you know, and so that mm-hmm. you are uh, you're participating. And the fact that you give them that encouragement, you know, and, and today it might be participating in the chat next time. When you do open your mouth, you're going to, say what needs to be said, and people are gonna kind of like, whoa. You know? <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in what context are you comfortable, right? So, so one of the things that we do that's really unique to our program is something called conferences where we have, it's almost like a parent-teacher conference, but we have it mm-hmm. as um, just us as the teachers and the advisor and the student. And it's like short, it's 15 minutes, but they have to come prepared um, with, and it's an assessment of how they've been doing, but it's not us telling them, here are your grades. It's that, them telling us, how do you think you've done so far? Um, you know, mm. where are your challenges? Where are your areas of improvement? And then you're like, you know, and you're, then you're like developing a little bit more, um, you know, your critical thinking skills, but it, it doesn't have the pressure of you have to make the cut in this way. Like similarly, you were sharing earlier about, you know, people and just, you know, like, not feeling like you can show up late or, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. While value and timeliness, there are also a whole context worth of reasons why you may not have been able to come to the class. And, you know, we're, we're in the Bronx. Like, people are taking trains and buses and, you know, doing all kinds of things, trying to find parking, like, all kinds of reasons, you know. It's not easy um, to develop this. But, again, like, once you remove the shame, that is also connected with this whole probably like this history of, oh, my gosh, I'm always late or always lazy. I don't like mm-hmm. – whenever someone says that L word, I'm like, listen, we're going to have to take that out of your vocabulary because it's, a, it's an identity that kind of sticks. And, you know, like it's different to say, you know, I'm feeling unmotivated right now. Mm. And, uh, and, this, and you know, and you don't even have to tell me why. You could just kind of keep it, you know, keep it general, um, you know, depending on the relationships that we build. But, you know, the this piece about self-advocacy, I mean, I, I know the work is, is, is reaching out to, to people and maybe, you know, like, I just, it's just we're planting seeds. I have seen now I've worked at um, Bronx Community College for almost eight years. And I am there at the graduations you know, um, and it's so deep because I had a student who, you know, I connected with six years ago and, you know, and she was my student and, and we worked on a college scholarship to get her fully funded um, for, for her school for all the years that she was going to be there. So when we worked on a scholarship, of course, I learned so much about her and all of the, you know, the resilient things that she was doing, but she um, she wrote me, a couple of weeks ago, and she sent the picture of her graduation cap and gown, and she was like, I couldn't have done this alone, <laughs> like, you know. Uh-huh. Um, she's a primary caregiver for, like, her siblings, and, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't have done this, and, and, and that's the gift for me. Um, but learning how that, you know, she had to navigate some really tough stuff after she left my classroom, um, but she had the confidence to go in and to persist and... To just keep trying um, and knowing that you know there was a home here and can you start mm-hmm
3: well you know I think that that's also the importance of having storytelling and people sharing their experience because you know yours might be different but you can relate to it and sometimes that's the thing that makes someone say oh I can go ahead and do this, you know, like, oh, if Marie was able to stand up there and do that or I've had someone say once, you know, like I saw you up there and, you know, here you're this black woman who's who's openly gay and you mm-hmm. were standing up in this room full of white people and he said, You know, if I can if she can do that, I can do that and I think that that's the in the importance of of storytelling, helping people uh, define their narrative and tell their stories. Now, Marie, you are a beautiful writer. Um, tell me you're still writing, and where are you? And I know you have a poem that was recently published, Rearranging the Bones. Are you writing still? I mean, is there going to be a book of poetry? How am I, I going to keep up with you as the writer?
2: I love just, this entire conversation is just like filled me with so much joy. Um, thank you, thank you for saying that. Um, so, in this year of quarantine, um, I have, uh, you know, it's funny because the writing kind of emerges in different places. I have found, you know, in the last year and a half or so, that um, it's, you know, writing in journals has always been my thing. Like to physically have a journal. But nowadays, I do find myself writing in my notes page on my phone, which tends Mm -hmm. to be, like, somewhat effective when I'm, like, if I'm, like, having an idea and I'm going on a walk. And and I'm just kind of learning, oh, how do do I learn how to, you know, to do that writing in a consistent way? Um, I am, um, let's see. So if you see me on social media, like, I often kind of, like, I'll, like, take a photograph and I will share some thoughts. Um, And so I was just talking to a friend of mine who said, you know, that's writing too. And I I appreciated her saying that. Um, But in terms of like anything that's like kind of upcoming and publishing, I am, I'm just, I'm not working on anything specific, honestly, but um, I am attending a writing workshop um, in the summer. uh, And it's a workshop on writing trauma. With Roxanne Gay, and I'm really excited about it. I am deeply humbled. I'm sort of just like, you know, so pulling myself together, and just I feel so honored. And I'm really looking forward to like the other writers that are going to be part of that workshop because if you apply for this, and uh, you know, we're having these deep conversations, then um, then I probably want you in my life. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think that's going to be a nice little restart point for me to create a more consistent practice of writing. I sort of do it in like it stops and it starts and it stops and it starts. Eventually I do – I would love – to publish a book of poetry, I would love to, you know, write, um, you know, publish a memoir. Those things are certainly like I have chapters and bits and pieces kind of, you know, all over the place. But I am feeling, um, I just turned forty um, a couple months ago, and um, you know, I just I, something energetically sort of shifted for me, and mm-hmm. I feel like I am like growing into um, into my purpose in a deeper way. Um, both like sort of as a mentor to people and as a learner and an educator, but also as a writer. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't have any definitive things about what's to come, but it's coming, Michelle, I promise you.
3: Well, well, I, I'm i going to be watching for it. And, you know, I mean, because that's what we do. <laughs> we have stories to tell. We have stories yeah. to tell. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Marie, our, we've come to the end of our time here together. Um, it's been wonderful. I will be inviting you back because, you know, we, there's so much more yet that we can talk about. But um, thank you for sharing reflections of a glass divide. It gave me all kinds of feelings. I mean, I gave mm-hmm. all kinds of feelings. You know, I mean, everywhere from from, you know, like being angry here, yeah. almost yeah. like at some point to think about things and being like, you know, I'm going to cry. But, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, you but, did. <laughs> but, 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 you know, the, and that's what was beautiful
2: about it. I want to thank you so much.
3: Um, I appreciate
2: you so much. Um, one thing that is keeping me, steady in the, you know, this vision of my writing is to remember who my audience is. Uh-huh. And my audience is, you know, queer and trans folks. My audience is BIPOC. My audience is you. My audience is, like, all those, you know, um, beloved people that you meet along the way. And, like, if I, you know, it's just, like, when I can focus on that, I can get out of my head um, yeah, about right. why I'm not. Mm-hmm. So, um, but honestly, like, your your podcast is um, incredible, and I'm I'm truly, truly, honored to have even been asked, um, you know, I I appreciate you, and I I look forward to coming back whenever the time allows.
1: I want to thank my guest, Marie Vargas, for sharing her moving short essay that she wrote about 20 years ago called Reflections of the Glass Divide. As Senior Advisor for the CUNY START Program at Bronx Community College in New York, she's passionate about expanding college access for communities of color, first-generation students, LGBTQIA individuals, recent immigrants, and undocumented students. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and Creating Change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.